The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missiodei.org. Last week, we took, to, uh, took a look at a story uh, in Luke chapter number 18, verses 18 through 30. And we're gonna revisit that story today. We're gonna revisit that over the next two weeks as well, where we're gonna take a look at different parts of that text. Last week, we did a really big overview of the entirety of the story that happens inside of those verses. And we really discovered um, a lot about ourselves and how we view and how we understand money, how we use our money, and what that reveals about what we value and what we worship, right? And then we looked at this interaction between a rich young ruler and Jesus. Really, the heart of it was about the ruler's affection and commitment to his money. So it wasn't necessarily about the money. It wasn't necessarily about Uh, the ruler's question, his question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, like a uh, ultimate conversationalist, we said, much like a chess player, seeing the end goal of wanting to reveal sin and wickedness in his heart, begins dissecting and going through this conversation, asking difficult questions, right? And so what we said last week was kind of the summary, if I could summarize in just one sentence, what was the sermon about last week, we would say that it was money is a gift to be enjoyed, but it is not a God to be worshiped. Money is a gift to be enjoyed, but it is not a God to be worshiped. And so this week, we wanna build on that reality, right? That money is a gift that should be enjoyed, that should be used, it's not a bad thing, but if we worship it as a God, it becomes a very bad thing. And so we wanna build on that reality Uh, understanding that how we use and understand money reveals our heart posture towards it. But it does even more than that. It also affects our understanding and our heart posture towards work, right? Work. And so we're not gonna dig into the idea of work and try to exhaust it in the next 30 to 40 minutes. That would be nearly impossible. But we are going to look at work specifically how it relates to how we use and understand and spend money. All right, and then in the fall, we'll circle back around to a three-week teaching series on the work and the gospel. What is it about work that's so beautiful that's gonna take three weeks for us to explain it and explore it? I'm looking forward to it. Um, if I could describe some of the closest people in my life, it would be hard working. Uh, my dad is one of the hardest workers that I've ever known, and it's been cool to watch uh, that character trait transfer to my brother, to myself, and then Tiffany. You guys have seen her. Uh, around here, especially after uh, a gathering on Sundays. Tiffany is the hardest working human being that I personally know, and I value hard work as well. And so work is important to me. I'm looking forward to digging into that topic, but I want us to understand we're gonna talk about work today in a way that primarily relates to how we spend and use our money. So we're not gonna exhaust work, we're gonna introduce ourselves to work and then we're gonna swing back around this fall and really dig into the theology of work, the practice of work, the heart behind uh, work and why uh, we do it. But for many of us, 
And hopefully by the end of this, this won't be the case, at least in our understanding, and hopefully our practice will begin to mimic our understanding over the course of the next few weeks as we process and think about what we're discussing today. But for many of us right now, if we ask the question, we would discover that money is a motivation, if not the sole motivation for our work, right? We go to work to get paid, right? Hopefully that's not the uh, collective environment here, but most of us hate and endure our jobs and we do it because we get paid for doing it, right? And so I, I get that. I, uh, I've been there, I've done that. I'm thankful that I no longer have to do that. I love the work that I get to do. Uh, it's exhausting, it's draining at times, but it's life-giving and really fulfilling and satisfying. So I'm thankful for that. But right off the get-go, it's important for us to understand, and this becomes a big idea that will, will, will help us develop uh, the rest of our text this morning, the rest of our sermon and teaching time this morning. It's really important for us to understand right at the beginning that money is a byproduct of our work and not the purpose for our working. Money is a byproduct of our work. It's something that comes from the work we do. It's a benefit, right? It's an added benefit to the work that we get to do. Hopefully you've got jobs that are life-giving and fulfill you and you uh, are encouraged by the work that you do. But money is, is, is a byproduct of our work and it's not the sole purpose for why we do the work that we do. Let's take a look at our text this morning, remember we said we were, as we examined the entirety of the text last week and drew out the big theme of this passage, we said we would go back and take smaller sections of this passage and seek to understand different things about them and different implications in regards to money being a gift and not a God to be worshiped. So we'll look at 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 18 through 22 this morning. And in the later weeks, we'll dig into other portions of, of this text. So read with me um, to yourself there in your seat, either off your phone or off your Bible or use the screen if, if you would so desire. The Bible says this, it says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And remember we said in asking, in Jesus responding to the question this way, his heart was to reveal that this man, this ruler was not nearly as good as he had thought he was. And so it was a, it's a pointed question. It was a targeted question for him to start understanding. Maybe I'm not as good as I just told you that I was good, right? Or I'm getting ready to tell you that I'm good. Verse 20, it says, you, you know the commandments. Jesus is continuing in his response. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Those of us that have a good understanding of the 10 commandments realize, hey, he did uh, give him in response some of those 10 commandments, but he left some out, didn't he? He left out the ones that related to God and him, but he included the ones that related to his brothers and people around him. And so we see that, uh, Jesus is just setting him up. He's, he's telling this story to reveal the true intentions and desires of his heart. I love it. Uh, verse 21, the ruler responds and he said, all these have I kept from my youth. And this is really the, the, the verse that we wanna clue in on uh, this morning. Uh, verse 22, and draw out a few implications regarding how we relate to money with our work 
from this particular verse. Jesus says this, he said, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is the word of the Lord. So God, I ask that as we dive into yet another week of just some challenging conversation and dialogue and and things that we need to hear but aren't really excited about hearing. I know that you've searched my soul throughout this week and, and brought a lot of sinful, selfish things from that. And so I pray that as we navigate this text and seek to make sense of it, that you would be glorified, that our response to that would be obedience and repentance of our sin and not disobedience. We ask these things for your glory and our joy. Amen. And so I, I, I have just two kind of implications that'll come out of verse 22 that I want us to understand to set some framework and explain exactly what's happening here and what Jesus is getting at as he's explaining to it. So there's two things, right? The first thing is this, is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the ruler for his wealth, but his love for his wealth. Right? Sometimes we, uh, as we examine a passage, what is left out tells us almost as much as what is included. And so as Jesus, in a uh, just an ultimate conversationalist way, is working to get this guy to understand that in his heart he's not as good as he was. He's, he hasn't kept these commandments as he said he had, and he actually valued his stuff and his money more than he valued God and eternal life and relationship in the kingdom. He, he, he steers him that way and he begins uncovering things. And so it's good for us to note right on the front end that he doesn't rebuke him for the amount of money that he's amassed. And so uh, we see here in that, that this man had, had worked to accumulate. Maybe he's the world's hardest worker and he had made good financial decisions. He had made great investments. Maybe he was a capital venturist. Whatever it was, he had earned or had in his possession a large sum of money. Other gospels give us a little bit more detail into just how wealthy this man was, but satisfied to say this man was wealthy enough to the point where he didn't necessarily have to work. And so he had either worked hard or he had inherited money. Either way, whether he worked to earn it or he had inherited a significant amount of money from his family, he had to work hard to keep it, right? We understand that. Because having a large amount of money doesn't mean the work stops. When you have that kind of money, you've really gotta do some work to retain that kind of money as people will steal it. You've gotta protect and, and watch over and care for all these possessions that you have. And you say, yeah, but he probably hired all that work out. Even so, he had to manage all the people that he had hired to take over his possessions. So the idea is that he was a worker. He had worked for the things that he had or he was working to keep the things that he had. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke him for the work or the wealth that is accumulated for his work. He never goes after the fact that the man had so many possessions, right? And so some of us, as we look at this text, our heart immediately uh, uh, draws to our opposition to work in some regard for the sake of accumulating money as if money is the problem. And so we push money aside and we don't wanna have money. We don't want, we want just enough and, and we clothe it in contentment, but the heart isn't necessarily contentment. It's I just don't wanna work to obtain it, right? Contentment's a good thing. 
Selfishness is a bad thing. I think we all understand that. And so it's important for us to see, and I think as Jesus is explaining this, that his things, his money, his wealth, all the things he had purchased with his wealth was not the problem. It was his allegiance to his money that was the problem. And it was, it was what was ultimately keeping this ruler from inherit eternal life. As we read through the story last week, that became abundantly clear and very evident. Second thing I want us to notice from this text is this. And we'll draw, we'll spend the remainder of our time drawing um, implications and application from this portion of the text. Second thing I want us to see is that Jesus brings renewed purpose to the use of wealth. Jesus brings renewed purpose to the use of wealth. Notice with me, as he's working through this, he doesn't uh, command this guy uh, as a, just a heart check or just as a, a test check to see if he would do it. He, he, he didn't ask the guy to sell off all of his possessions to come and follow him just for the sake of this ruler becoming a poor person. Right, he renews his wealth and renews the purpose of his wealth and takes what he had used and he's gonna use it or he's gonna invite this ruler to use it as a way to bless others, as a way to meet needs, as a way to change society. He commanded the ruler to sell off all of his possessions, to reveal his worship of his things, to bless others, and so that he would be able to come and follow him because it was his massed wealth, his dependence on his things, his dependence on his money that kept him from participating in the kingdom of God, kept him from inheriting the kingdom of God, and kept him from doing the very commandments that he had told Jesus he was already doing, right? And so we see this, we understand this. And so we would summarize this portion of our text this morning like this. And I hope that we see it, I hope we see it, and we'll spend the rest of our time seeing it and how we relate to it is that this is this. Work is a good thing created by God for his glory, for our joy, and the good of others, right? Work is a good thing created by God for our joy, for his glory, and for the good of others. Adam, all the way back at the beginning in the book of Genesis as God created man and put him in a created place, the garden, was given work to do, right? And Eve was created to help him with that work. And all of this created, ordained, and instituted by God prior to Genesis chapter three where sin happened, the fall entered the picture, and man begun being corrupted, right? Work was a vital part of that. Let's look at Genesis chapter number two, verses 15 through 18, and see what the word of God's design for work was. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is good, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so we see that prior to the fall in God's 
good design of creation before the stock market existed, before pension plans were reality, before people were reimbursed for their time as a working relationship with their companies, that God's design for his people was to work. It was a good thing. It was a great thing. We see it as God's way of caring for his creation. Work is God's way of caring for his creation. And so all legitimate forms of work must be viewed and celebrated in that light, right? Uh, I have had the privilege of, of both working as a blue collar union electrician, as I stated last week, and as a white collar kind of role as a pastor, although it seems a lot of times more like blue collar work than, than white collar work if your hands are dirty uh, and you're around the sheep and shepherding is an ugly, sometimes very dirty thing. Uh, but I've been on both sides of the table and sometimes, or most times, uh, what happened is when I was a blue collar worker at a union electrician and we would sit around a lunch table, most of our conversation was talked about uh, as the white collar people didn't know what they were doing. They were ruining society. They were changing our country. They were uh, all, all bad things, right? And, and so on this side of things, sometimes the blue collar worker can kind of get, get the, uh, the bad blood or bad conversation from the white worker standpoint. But God is uh, ordained and created and designed to work as a way for the functioning and the flourishing of his good people in his good creation to flourish, right? And so we get that, like what would life be like without blue collar workers and white collar workers? Like we value the work and the intellect and the contribution to society that both of the sides of that bring. Work provides opportunity. Work makes provision for mission and can be used to provide for the needs of others. And we see that play out in our life. Like we put on clothes this morning that were worked and created by somebody. We eat at restaurants or we buy food from the grocery store that was worked and prepared by somebody. The roads that we drive on, the stoplights that keep us from crashing into each other are people's work and contribution to society that makes things flourish and function as they should. This is all part of God's design. Work isn't a curse of the fall as we sometimes view it. Why do we view it that way? Why is work something that becomes a curse? Because sin corrupts work and corrupted work seems like a curse to us. And so in and as God's good design is corrupted through the sinfulness of humanity and the sinfulness of ourselves, we get, begin to see that our dependence on ourself it gets really clearly expressed in the corruption of our work. And so how does that corruption get worked? And I've got two ends of the spectrum that I think draws almost all of us in to the conversation, right? Some of us underwork. Some of us underwork. Just laziness, right? And as a hard worker, I can very easily say, whoop, that's not me, but there have been seasons in my life where maybe I didn't give exactly all that I could have given and I've, I've, I've underworked and I've cheated my employer and I've done things that were sinful as a result of underworking and laziness. See, as people who underwork, we can refuse to obey God's commandment to work, expressing our dependence on ourselves and our ways 
rejecting our need for God and his ways because work is something that's ordained and designed by God. When we don't work like he's created us to work, we're saying that our way is better than his way. I don't need his commandments. I don't need his instruction. I don't need him to tell me to work. I'd rather not work, right? And the reaction to that is because we haven't worked hard for our money It's difficult for us to understand the value of our money. And so some of us can spend foolishly the little bit of resources that we do have, leaving very little, if any, money to be generous, to use for blessing others, to be used for building and advancing the kingdom of God because we've used it all and we haven't earned more and we've not been faithful in our work. And so even what we've used because we haven't worked terribly hard for it, We spend it unwisely and foolishly. Oftentimes, our laziness towards work gets carried out even in responsibilities in our homes and the church as well. And so because we're lazy in our work, the the work that provides us income, the more important work of being a husband or being a wife or being a dad or being a mom or being a church member often gets overlooked because our laziness just carries into the heart of everything that we do. And then it also causes relational tension because we look at other people who are progressing and advancing. We look at other people who are working hard and we become bitter. We become jealous at the things that they have, at the opportunities that they get. And it starts to cause us to not view them in the same way that God views them. There's that one. And then this is the one I tend to gravitate towards and my propensity is definitely towards it. Some of us uh, overwork. This is the idea of workaholicism. Uh, We overwork. Um, We refused to rest ever, expressing our dependence on ourselves and our work to accomplish everything that needs to be done. This is why the importance of a Sabbath rest is vitally important, not just to our physical bodies, but for our souls, expressing our dependence and worship of God and not the things that we can do in our own strength, right? Sabbath rest is important. There is freedom, certainly in the details. Uh, of does it have to be Friday, does it have to be Saturday, gonna be Sunday, gonna be Tuesday, gonna be Wednesday. There's tons of freedom that Christ has given us and secured for us. But everyone should set aside specific time to rest from our work, even when all of our work is not done. Even when all of our work is not done. Um, so this is, this is the challenging part for me, right? I had um, two different experiences that really started me down the path of thinking more deeply about rest. One of them was a lunch that I had with David Hayes uh, right before he left for St. Louis for a few months worth of work where he, uh, just in a real uh, intense conversation, kinda, some of it was casual, but it turned intense when he started asking me questions I didn't have good answers to. Uh, one of them was, what, what does rest look like for you? Because I, I've gotten to know you for about three years and it seems like you are constantly on the go. You don't stop, you don't slow down, you don't rest well. What does rest look like you so, for you so that I can hold you accountable? And I had zero answers for him, I don't know. 
I need you to help me explore and discover that. The second was um, we were invited to dinner to the Coles and uh, we participated in uh, something that's a tradition that they, they institute in their home and they believe deeply in, uh, Shabbat, which kicks off a Sabbath rest. And if I butcher the details, please forgive me. But we sat down and he walked his family through the reality that uh, by asking them simple questions, was there, is there st- something to the extent of, was there still work to do? Yes, but are we still gonna rest? Yes, because we're resting in the finished work of Christ, not in the works of our own hands or something to that effect. And it's been, it's been, been very clear and very vivid from those two conversations that God's really trying to work on my heart for my sin of overworking. In resting, we're declaring our dependence on Jesus's finished work on our behalf eternally and our desire to receive his grace for what remains undone temporally. That's the hard part for me, what remains undone temporally. Because like many of you, I'm not gonna put myself in the category alone, like many of you, you work jobs that are repetitive, there's always something else, the work doesn't ever seem to end, right? But very easily we can be dependent on ourselves and our abilities and our desires and our strengths to accomplish everything that gets done. Some of us are slaves to the task list of getting everything done to the detriment of anything else that needs to happen. And that can be sinful, that can be wicked. Overworking causes us to hoard our money, right? Because we've worked so hard for it. This mindset or this corruption of our work hinders, if not eliminates, our need for being generous because everyone around us simply needs to work as hard as we have worked to get the things that we have gotten, right? Like, uh, it's, it's that mindset. We have a hard time relating to people that we have deemed as lazy, but oftentimes our very commitments to overworking and to earning more money leaves us extremely lazy towards our more important responsibilities in our homes and in our church, right? We, we invest and we lay out and we work, work, work. We work ungodly hours. We work ungodly amounts of time. We work so hard that when we come home and it's husband and it's child and we're sitting around a table, we're so exhausted that we can't engage in relationship with the very people God placed under our care that we're gonna have to give an account for how we shepherd them and led them and took care of them, right? It becomes detrimental. That is a very clear, vital symptom to our overworking. If we work so hard at work that we come home and we have no energy for our wife or our spouse and we have no energy to engage with our kids and you're looking at one of the probably biggest perpetrators of this at the church that needs to be held accountable from my wife and from my family and from the men that I've got around me. Uh, The other elders have access to my schedule. They see how many nights a week I'm out because if I am given freedom to run and do whatever I want, I'd never come home, right? Because there's a sinful desire in my heart that continually perpetuates that I am needed to get these things done. Somebody else can't do it. If it doesn't get done, it's not gonna get done. And God's bigger than that. God's bigger than that. 
Even my man, Josh Hopper, back at the sound booth, you don't get to see him much, but he's always back there, he's always working, works diligently, and oftentimes tells me, hey man, I've got this. You don't need to worry about it. Because I have an innate desire, if I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone. I become a grouchy person to work around uh, because I'm, I'm so focused and intense about the things that we're doing. Even beyond just foregoing our responsibilities at home and in the church because of our overworking, don't we even, even if just in our mind cast this uh, really bad shadow on maybe somebody whose politics look different than us or their desire for work isn't nearly as strong as ours and we begin to treat them as if they're not human beings. These are symptoms of somebody who overworks. I've worked to get what I have. Everybody that doesn't shouldn't even be a human, right? We wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that, but we think it and we act as if that's the case sometimes. All symptoms of our overworking. And I get it, everybody should work. There's biblical principles about work. Work is a good thing, work is a holy thing. But grace also needs to be shown to those who haven't had the privilege to center to gospel teaching that tells them the value of work. So after we, we examine both of these overworking, underworking, think to yourself, think throughout this week, are you more prone towards the sin of overworking or Underworking. Are you more prone towards the sins of overworking or underworking? And then how has that hindered or minimally affected your dependence on Jesus? Right? How have you become more dependent on yourself than you have learned to be continually dependent on Jesus? As we mature and as we put in more time in with our employers, like hopefully the natural progression is that we earn more money, right? We get raises, we get advancement opportunities, we climb the ladder and those things come with more payoffs. We look for employment outside of ourselves, we get tired of working from somebody so we start our own company and we wanna work for ourselves and hopefully over time that's profitable and successful and God shows favor towards that and you begin doing well, you begin making more money. But I wanna challenge us with the idea that Perhaps God isn't giving us raises in our income solely for an increase in our standard of living, but for an increase in our standard of giving, right? Because I think the natural progression is I earn more money, I get to consume and buy more things. I get to consume and buy nicer things. But if the whole idea of work is that money is a byproduct of the time that we're spending to work, not the purpose of working, then it makes sense to me to translate that to the purpose of my money is not to continually buy more things. The purpose of my money is to give more things away. And so are you more generous with your money now than you were five years ago? Are you more generous with your money now more than you were five years ago. I think five years ago is a pretty good timetable for advancement opportunities, things of that nature. Um, we have, and I, don't, I, don't, I just told you all the bad things about the way that I'm a terrible overworker and very much a workaholic and it's an ongoing thing that I have to struggle with and be held accountable for and have people speaking in my life. So this is no way celebrating me. 
But Timmy and I have come to the place where it's kind of like, we're kind of just capped out on the things we wanna have. I wanna, I, if you know me and you've been to our home, like I literally don't like the things that we do have. And we don't have very many things hanging on the wall or anything like that. I wanna get rid of a lot of those things that declutter my life. But it even translates into, do we need to buy a bigger house? Do we need to buy nicer cars? Should I buy that truck that I talked to you about last week? And so I've come to the point in my life where things really uh, don't have eternal value and I wanna invest in things that are able. And so I'm thankful that we now have the opportunity to invest in several uh, parachurch leaders, both uh, at the college level, at the high school level. We get to be invested in the kingdom of God advancing through the labor and through the work that those people do. We get to invest as church planters. It's a joy of mine to be able to invest and give towards other church planters. And so Timmy and I invest in church planters. I've got a friend who will speak for us in May who's planning a church in Lebanon area and we it is a joy to have resources to be able to give them away to bless him and his family as they seek moving to an area of the city they don't know anybody in and start to put down roots building relationships so they can see the establishment of a gospel-centered church happen like that's that's joy and I want to invite you into that and challenge you to get to the place in your thinking about work and your money that it is more of a joy to give more of it away than it is to keep it right because that's freedom it's joy filled living when you can give your money away not stress out about it not worry about it not think about it it's amazing it's amazing and so um, are you more generous with your money now than you were five years ago? Prone to overworking, prone to underworking. Thankful the gospel does work in our hearts. Jesus redeems the hearts of man, bringing freedom to the work of humanity. Right? This is the idea that Jesus has redeemed our hearts and in redeeming our hearts, he's redeemed our work and in redeeming our hearts, he's given us freedom to work. Not for the slavery of buying more things and hoarding up more money, although all that's not bad. We're gonna get to that implication in two weeks of saving and stewarding, being wise. The Bible says tons of that, so I don't want you to go away from here saying I should give everything I have and I should keep nothing for the future and I should not have any nice things. That's not at all what we're saying. We're really dissecting and looking at our heart. And is it our heart that needs those things or would we be as joyful, satisfied, and fulfilled without them? That's the question Jesus is asking this rich young Lord. Do you want eternal life, even if it means you sell every one of your possessions, you give all of it to the poor, and you come and follow me? That's the question. We're looking at our heart, not necessarily dissecting, well, what's, what's okay to have and what isn't okay to have? It's up to the conscience and the leading of the Holy Spirit for you to decide what should your standard of living be. I'm just trying to push back on should your standard of living continue to grow? Because the, the inverse of that, and I've seen it at seasons in my life, was as my standard of living rose, my standard of giving lessened. Something's not right about that, Right? but Jesus redeems the hearts. He, he frees us from having to have money. He frees us from the power and the control that comes with it. He frees us from the possessions that overwhelm our lives and he gives us freedom to work for his glory in a way that's joyful for us and a way that can bless 
others. In his death, Jesus died to overcome our sinfulness and our selfishness. He overcame our propensity to hoard and be stingy with our time, our treasure, and our talent. He also resurrected, offering new life and immense hope to all who would believe. And as we believe, he gives us the freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit to be generous with our time, to be generous with our treasure, and to be generous for, with our talents for his glory and the good of others. It's freeing, right? The death, burial, and resurrection frees us to work as if God intended work. It doesn't have to be selfish motivation. It doesn't have to be uh, terrible uh, work ethics. It doesn't have to uh, uh, downplay our morals to advance in the workplace. We've been freed from that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We no longer have to work as if everything depends on us, right? That's my problem. I don't have to work as if everything depends on me because Jesus has met our greatest need of salvation by overcoming our greatest problem of sin. And in doing so, he has provided for our greatest desire, security. And he gives us all of that. The payment for our sin, the security that we need to have, it's not found in our money, it's not found in our things, it's not found in our homes, it's not found in our cars, it's not found in our bank accounts. Security is found in Christ, in our union with him. And we unite to Christ by belief in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Right, and so that's, that's the call today. For us that are believers, examine our souls and find ourselves repentant of our sin, believing once again the truth of the gospel. If we're in here today and we don't know Jesus, I invite you to come, place your faith and your trust in the finished work that he's accomplished, not in anything that you can do, not in any amount of wealth that you can secure, not in any amount of work that you can accomplish. So what do we do in response to this this morning? Work diligently with integrity. Work diligently with integrity. We can. Feels like, feels like for the most part we've been beaten up this whole time, doesn't it? At least I have. Here's where the good news is. We can and we should work as hard as we possibly can can and we should work as hard as we possibly can. We should and we can. The gospel frees us to do this. Climb the corporate ladder or whatever work structure you're in as high as you possibly can, right? Earn as much money as you can. Work as hard as you can. Take as many opportunities as you can. But we should do that without a abandoning our relational responsibilities and sinning against others to do so. Right? God frees us to earn, to work, to, to advance, to grow. Our finances, our businesses, our job situation, God's freeing us to do that, but it doesn't negate the reality that he's given us other commands and other responsibilities to care for his people, which is his prized possession. 
right? And so if we've got to work in advance to the detriment of our families, it's no longer good and rightful work, it's sinful work. If we've gotta work in advance by stepping over people to get to the top, by making up stories and slandering them and lying, the first person, the person that loses in credibility the quickest with me is the person that has to downplay somebody else for the advancement of themselves. Like what that shows is a weakness and an insecurity and a dependence on you and not Jesus. Because if I understand Jesus loves them as a human being just as much as he loves me, I'll treat them with the same dignity and respect that Jesus has treated me with, right? And so this affects our work. We work diligently, but we do so with integrity and understanding this reality. I can be fair, this is something that uh, gets said around the office at least 10 times a week, Right? It's this idea, and it translates to all of our lives. But here's what's said in the office 10 times a week. Missio Day Church, West or Central, will and can find a new pastor. This isn't an announcement. This is just what we use to remind ourselves of what's most important. Missio Day West and Missio Day Central can and will find themselves new pastors, but our wife should never have to go find her a new husband. Our kids should never have to find new dads. And so keep that in mind. Your employers can and will find new employees. But it'd be a shame if your wife or your husband had to go and find themselves a new wife or husband, or your kids would have to go find themselves a new mom or dad. All right, let's put that into perspective. Work diligently, but do so with an, uh, integrity. Let's look at the second one. Earn abundantly to give generously. Earn abundantly to give generously. In the gospel, we should feel the freedom to earn as much as we possibly can, as we'll learn in a couple of weeks, so that we can save and steward and make wise financial decisions. Not Jesus isn't calling any of us, maybe, to give away everything we have and sell it all to the poor. But he is examining and checking all of our hearts, right? We should earn freely to earn as much as we possibly can, but so that we can give away as much as we possibly can, right? If we're not giving more now than we gave five years ago, but we're making significantly more income, we should ask our question of our hearts, why is that? Then is your current giving, whether to the church or to various uh, ministry organizations around the city, is it causing you to sacrifice anything? Anything. Like sacrifice is one of the most underrated things in our society. We never wanna go without anything to give or bless somebody else. And so is what you're giving costing you something? Are you going without for something better, right? Good questions to examine our souls. As your income increases, your generosity increased. I already asked that question, so we won't spend more time there. And then lastly, wait temporarily for now. Wait, for, wait in the now for treasure eternally. Wait temporarily for treasure eternally. 
We have the inherent desire to have everything right now, don't we? Like many of us aren't great planners. We feel something and in that moment we spend on that something. We live in such a culture of instant gratification. Uh, many things in our culture uh, testifies to that reality. The use of prolific pornography and the way that we seek uh, instant gratification from it, credit card debt and the fact that we can swipe our cards and it makes it easier to consume things that we don't have the money for. And fast food where we can pick up really bad food really fast are all testaments to the reality that we live in a now temporal focused society. But investing for eternity is something because of that fast paced world that we live in is a bit lost on us, right? Doesn't, we, don't make, we can't see tangibly all the time the result of that. Now I think this and what God is doing and what God is building and what God is growing here in Westwood to, to shape this entire region of our city is a testament to as tangibly as you can get investment in the kingdom because a lot of people have invested time, energy, prayers, and resources to see something like this happen and continue to do so faithfully so that it can continue to happen. But for the most part, as we invest in God's kingdom for the changing and redeeming of lives, it's oftentimes really difficult to see our return on that investment. And so it becomes difficult. We don't wanna give towards it because we can't tangibly see what is happening. But God calls his followers to do what? To store up treasure in heaven. So it becomes vitally important that we don't consume everything that we can here and we wait maybe on things that we want to have for the blessing of others, for the advancement of the kingdom, for the building of his church so that the gospel continues to reach people. And so how, how are you investing in the eternal kingdom of God right now? How are you investing in the eternal kingdom of God right now? I'm gonna pray. Um, I'm gonna invite our response team back up. If I could have um, just a couple volunteers again. If you were not here last week um, or you lost yours already, we do have extras. I want you to have it. I want you to see it. I want you to process this. I want you to be thinking about this. But God, I just have two people that would be willing to pass these out. If you don't have one or if you lost yours, no shame, no shame given, no condemnation, I want you to have it. And so there are extras, there's not enough for every single person to get one every single week, um, but grab them. And so just lift up your hand because so many people got them last week, they may not have already gotten them. Um, if you need one, get one, please. Um, let me get one. And I want to, again, we're not making decisions, we're not filling anything out. You can find this in the app as well. So if you're not a paper, a hard paper person, don't feel like you need to. But the, the verse is Malachi chapter number three. Thanks, Zach. Malachi chapter three, verse 10, the Bible says, bring the full tithe, a 10% into the storehouse. The storehouse is the church. Bring the tithe into the church that there may be food in my house and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
right? And so the idea is that we examine our giving. Some of us don't give, and maybe the next action step is just to begin giving and stretch ourselves. Maybe it can't be 10% because, man, we're financially underwater. There's a box on here too. We can connect you with Orange Financial. They're financial investors. They're great guys. They've helped that we use them. Tiffany and I meet with them. They're good resources for us to get financially healthy so that we can be in a place where we can be generous. Um, also, we just wanna think through, if you're, if you're a tither, you say, man, I give my 10%. And ask God, put God to the test, challenge yourself and him. If I give more, is there capacity for me to do that? Ask those kinds of questions over the next few weeks. We'll fill this out in the coming weeks, but I just want you to have it, to think about it, to view it, to process and examine your giving, your generosity. Again, this is not, we said it last week, this is not about you giving more money to church. I don't want more of your money. It's about examining your soul. And we would be, we talked about in the office, right, in, in prepping for this series and in examining whether we want to do this series. This isn't a popular church planning series, like, hey, you're six months old, let's talk about money. That's not ideal. But as shepherds, as leaders who want to disciple our people towards dependence on Jesus, we would not do a faithful job if we did not talk about the thing that Jesus talked more about than heaven and hell combined, right? And so that's the heart of this. That's the heart, so examine yourself. I'll pray, and then we'll go through our time of response this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love that you show us and the mercy and grace that you extend to us. I know this is challenging, it's challenged me, each and every week, next week will be equally as challenging. My God, I pray that you would search our hearts, point us towards dependence on you, not a dependence on ourselves. May we ultimately see and rest in your finished work so that our work doesn't have to continually satisfy and sanctify ourselves because your work has done and made full our need to work for salvation and security on our own. Help us to find those things in you and not in of ourselves. Amen.